If you think you'd fare better there as an adult rather than in the sermon here, I suppose you can go too. Revelation chapter 11. Would you open up a Bible to Revelation chapter 11? You should find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Revelation chapter 11. Last book of the Bible, chapter 11. Just to kind of set the stage here for those of you, I know we have many first-time guests. Welcome to our church. And we uh, are studying through the book of Revelation right now. Several months ago we started in Revelation chapter 1 and we just kind of each week take the next section of the Bible and are working our way through it, and which is kind of our MO. Um, you know, just again, if you're sort of new, uh, just to explain our church a little bit, that's kind of what we do. What you're seeing here in the service is pretty much what we do every Sunday. I mean, we've kind of spiced it up a little, you know, the choir, they kind of kicked it up a notch, and it's flowers, and I have these, you know, this moo-moo or whatever, so <laughs> it's just like, I don't normally wear this thing, but, um, you know, we, but besides that, this is sort of what we do. We we get together and we study the Bible, and we just find that this book has an uncanny kind of prophetic relevance to our day. And so, uh, you know, some, some places, some pulpits handle things differently. Some pulpits give more political commentary. Other pulpits will give you maybe New York Times bestseller, book of the week kind of stuff. But we just find that this old book is, is alive and We've actually come to believe it's the Word of God. And so we just keep coming back to it because it, it always comes up big for us. So that's what we're doing today. We're studying Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. If you come back next Sunday, we'll be on Revelation chapter 12. And that's, that's how we roll. So let me read the text. Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, the One who is and who was, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and Your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within the temple was seen the ark of His covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Easter isn't over yet. And when I say that Easter isn't over yet, I don't obviously mean today isn't over yet, because obviously not. And you know, we still have Easter dinner that I'm starting to visualize now that I'm looking forward to. When I say that Easter isn't over yet, I'm talking, of course, about the first Easter in the first century A.D., in the first half of the first century A.D., when Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead by the supernatural power of God. And when I say that that Easter isn't over yet, I don't simply mean that therefore Jesus is alive today, even though I mean that as well. Uh, Christ is alive. He's reigning at the Father's right hand. We believe in a risen Lord. That's why when you know Seth says, the Lord is risen, we all say He is risen indeed, because we believe that Christ is the risen King. But, but I mean something even more than that. What I'm saying is that when Jesus stepped out of that tomb 
in the early cool hours of a Palestinian spring almost 2,000 years ago, that he was setting in motion events, he was setting in motion circumstances that have yet to reach their culmination, that were still waiting for the full flowering of everything to begin in that Easter. So in that sense, it's not over yet. It's still unfolding. So what I want to do this morning is think about the meaning of Easter with you. But rather than looking at a Bible passage that focuses on describing the first Easter Sunday, I kind of want to take you to the very upcoming last and final Easter when, when all of this will reach its culmination. And so what I want to do is sort of interpret Easter in light of the culmination of Easter. You, you know, you can think of Easter as a kind of day of heavenly invasion. To use a World War II metaphor, it was sort of a D-Day. And we're looking forward still to the VE day, but I mean victory, not a victory over Europe, victory over earth when Christ will come again. And so I want to look at a text that describes that coming day and then try to understand the resurrection in light of it and then taking those two together to ask what does it mean for today? How do we live today in light of these texts? So we're looking here at Revelation chapter 11. Uh, As I said, we're just studying through this book. Today we come to verses 15 and 19. And it's, it's a glimpse, it's a description of the final judgment day when Christ will return, when God's kingdom will come. You know, verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Uh, verse 17, you're, you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. Verse 18, your wrath has come. The time for judging the dead is upon us. All of these are events, descriptions of the final day when Christ comes again. And so you have here this final picture. And, and I, probably, I, I think the verse that resonates with me, the verse that I just couldn't stop pondering as I was thinking about this, was that declaration there in verse 15, where loud voices in heaven said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. I'll tell you, I just... I'm resisting the urge to break out in Handel's Messiah here, you know, and just start singing that part. But out of respect for Handel's work, I won't ruin it by attempting to sing what's in my heart right now. So this great day is coming when the kingdom of the world will be replaced, supplanted, done away with, and instead the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. What does that mean? What what does all that look like? Well, let's just take that first phrase there. The kingdom of the world. Let's start with that. What is the kingdom of the world? That's kind of a funny phrase. It's not really the way we talk about the world today. I mean, the world has many nations, it has many countries, kingdoms, democracies, parliaments, dictatorships. You know, is this talking about one geopolitical nation? I don't think so. Because I think there are many countries in the world. But, but, but it's talking about something deeper, more systemic. It's, it's sort of more, rather than a political designation, it's kind of a spiritual designation for the human race that certainly manifests itself in part in political ways and countries and cultures, but it's deeper than that. It's talking about sort of the spiritual disposition of our world. Um, it, so it's not so much a place as it is a kind of posture, a, a way that we stand toward God. And it's clear from this text that the kingdom of the world is kind of a negative description that the world stands in hostility toward God. That, that essentially the kingdom of the world means that it's the world saying, we're the kings, and God is not king. It, it, it's the world saying to God, 
no, we don't need to do it your way. We don't need you. In fact, we don't even know if we believe in you. We're going to do it our way, on our terms, on our uh, structure and our beliefs. We're going to make it up as we go. It's the world living in autonomy toward God. And so it's portrayed as a negative, hostile opposition to God. Put simply, the kingdom of the world is when the people of the world think that they're all kings and queens, which we do and the way we live. The kingdom of the world was founded a long, long time ago in a garden far, far away. When Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, God put them in this beautiful environment. He said, have at it, enjoy it, multiply, take over, spread out the garden, you know, rule over this creation that I've given you, and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And and there was this love and trust between God and people. God only put one thing off limits in that whole garden. Do you remember the story? He said, there's this one tree over here. Don't touch that tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what essentially God was doing was drawing a line in the sand to remind them that they were still the creation and He was the Creator, that He's still King. And it was a way of showing their honor for God by acknowledging His authority and His His royal sovereignty and royal prerogative. And so when the serpent came to entice Adam and Eve, what was his sales pitch? How did, what did he say to entice them? Was it, hey, look at this fruit. It looks really juicy. I bet you're thirsty, aren't you? Are you thirsty? Look how juicy the fruit is. But that wasn't it. It was, if you eat this, you'll become what? Like God. It was an allurement to throw off creatureliness and to put on the royal robes of godhood and to say, we will do it ourselves. I will determine for myself what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is true and false. I'll take on the prerogatives of God. And so... By the time Eve was reaching out and grabbing that fruit, by the time her teeth were biting into it, the fall from grace had already happened. The fall from grace wasn't just eating the fruit. It was when the heart of Adam and Eve went, you know, when the the needle went from God is king to I'm going to be king. And when that secret move happened within the soul, everything was undone. And the eating of the fruit was simply just the follow through on the swing that had already begun. And so the kingdom of the world really is, I think at its core, fundamentally a kind of self-trust, a self-deification, giving to ourselves what is really the right of God. America today is full of the kingdom of the world. Even though we are a republic, we're not a, a monarchy, we don't have a king. Actually, we do. We have about 300 million kings. <laughs> 300 million queens and popes. We all think we're the ones who are in charge. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the sort of the conventional wisdom today in our culture is this postmodern mentality that says we all create our own realities. You know, I create my own truth. I decide for myself what is right and wrong. I create my own morality. I create my own spirituality. I create my own religion, if I'm religious at all. And even when we do religion, it's kind of a la carte. You know, we take this piece, that piece, we piece it together as it works for me. The, this, the, the kingdom of this world does not say, who is God and what does He demand of me? The kingdom of the world says, who am I and what works for me? And so we become sort of the, the interpretive lens through which we view all of reality. What does it have to do with me? And this self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-justifying 
Spirit is the essence of the kingdom of God, whether it lives politically in a democracy or a monarchy is kind of secondary. It's ultimately a kind of condition and posture of the heart that describes the whole world in which we live. And I think we also have to say, just to kind of wrap up this kingdom of the world idea, is that the kingdom of the world has been pretty much an unmitigated disaster. It has not worked well. It's not gone well for the human race. That the result of our supposed freedom of God is that we have, we've ruined ourselves. I mean, we, we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. I think that's an understatement. We, we live in some other place. We live in a, a broken and sinful world. And we look at our lives, and, and what has our freedom from God brought us? Division, fighting, hypocrisy. You know, people try to become religious and they become hypocritical. We, we even undercut God by messing up religion. You know, there's division, there's fighting, there's divorce, there's brokenness, there's estrangement, there's addictions. This is the world in which we live. Poverty and war. And we try to fix those things. We say, okay, we're going to fix the world. Here we go. We need better health care. We need to cut the taxes. We need more education. And we come up with social programs, all of which may have or may not have varying degrees of success. But, but they're kind of, you know, all those things are kind of like trying to, to treat cancer with a Band-Aid. With, with like, you know, it's like you have stage four cancer. Here's a Flintstone vitamin. It just doesn't work. There's something so deep in us. It's our hearts that are ultimately the problem. And so while those things may have merit, Congress has yet to pass legislation that can change my heart and can put to death the self-drivenness that I find in myself when I'm truly honest. So the kingdom of the world is, is deep. It, it is, it's my fundamental orientation. And it's, it's been a disaster for humanity. We think sometimes we have this sort of fantasy that the world is improving because, you know, we have iPhones or something like that. You know, like the look at our technology. And we have MRIs and hospitals and antibiotics. And, and aren't these great things? And they are. You know, God has given us creativity. When God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and said, fill the earth and subdue it, what he was saying was just use these God-given powers to, to move out into the world and discover these things. God created us to be creative, investigative, scientific entrepreneurial kinds of beings. But the problem is is that that creative side of us is undercut by this character flaw that we have of, of autonomy from God. And so even though we've advanced techno- technologically, the human race is exactly where it is spiritually and morally as it was 500 years ago and 5,000 years ago. We haven't evolved for the better morally. <laughs> Look at the 20th century. Easily the most bloody violent, barbaric, genocidal century in the history of the human race to date. Where, where is our moral and spiritual evolution to match our technological evolution? And so God has set a date when He is bringing this failed project of self-autonomy to an end. He's coming to bring it to an end when the kingdom of this world will be overthrown at last and replaced with the kingdom of God. Look again at verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Okay, so what's the kingdom of God? What's that? kingdom of the world is, is where 
we are the kings. The kingdom of God then is the opposite. It's where God is the king. It's where the people in the kingdom look upward instead of inward and they say, that is the Lord. We will love Him. We will serve Him. We will fellowship with Him. We will know Him. We will serve and and obey Him and we'll live for God. That our life comes from a life-giving relationship with who God is. That's the kingdom of God. And it's a wonderful thing. You know, the kingdom of God then is, is God's reign and rule in the cosmos. It raises a question, are we saying then that God is not the king right now, that he'll only become the king then? Of course not. God is the king right now. He's always the king, always has been the king. The difference is right now God's kingdom is being opposed. The point is when he comes again, opposition will be exterminated and God will be king overall. So, so he is king, but right now we don't necessarily feel and experience the totality of his kingdom on this earth. But the promise we find in Scripture is that someday Christ is coming again and, and once again there will be Eden except on steroids and gone cosmic, not just some little garden someplace. The kingdom of God where God reigns and injustice, evil, sin, death, sickness are no more because God once again lives with His people and they once again have access to the tree of life. This is the vision that God's given us. And it comes in the Old Testament. You know, just as the kingdom of God started in the Garden of Eden way back then, you look in the Old Testament, you begin to find pictures, promises, prophecies of the coming kingdom of God as well. And what's interesting is, is as you move through the Old Testament, this sort of fuzzy glimpse of the coming kingdom of God kind of moves toward us and it becomes more and more crisp and distinct. We learn more about it as we get closer and closer to the time of Jesus. And, and as we do so, one of the things that emerges is there's this this figure in the coming kingdom of God visions who is, is this interesting king figure who's kind of a human, but he's also divine. He, he has human characteristics and God characteristics. And, and as as we get closer and closer and understand more about this coming kingdom of God, you find that God's kingdom is not just going to come in kind of an amorphous new age sort of way, but that it's focused on a person, this person in the old Testament is sometimes called the son of David or the Christ or the servant or the Messiah is different names and titles, but you see that God's kingdom is focused on a person. That's why it says here in revelation 11, this is very old Testament. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of who? our Lord, and of His Christ. The word Christ is just the Greek word for anointed one. Messiah is the Greek word, or the Hebrew word for anointed one. So Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah means Jesus the anointed one, the anointed king. And, and so there's all these texts. Boy, we could spend a whole morning here just looking at Old Testament texts that describe this coming kingdom. But like I said, I'm having a personal vision of Ham right now. So um, let's move ahead and... I just want to show you one Old Testament vision of the coming kingdom of God just to illustrate what I'm talking about. So put a bookmark here in Revelation and turn back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's on page 882 in the Pew Bible, 882. Daniel 7, verse 13. Here's one, for instance, of this vision of the coming kingdom of God led by God's King. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, page 882. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Or as it says in Revelation, He will reign forever and ever. So isn't this an interesting person? He's human, He's a son of man, but He's also got God-like characteristics. He comes into God's presence on a cloud. He has all authority over the world. He has an eternal kingdom. And most of all, it says right there in verse 14, He will be worshipped. Not just respected or looked up to or obeyed, but worshipped as as God Himself is worshipped. And really, that's, I think, the heart of the kingdom of God. If you had to, again, try to put your finger on it, the kingdom of the world is marked by a lack of worship and honor and glory to God and to His Son. The kingdom of God is the one where praise lives for who God is. Or as it says in Habakkuk about that final kingdom, it's, it's the kingdom where the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters fill the sea. Where all the people will know and love and worship who He is. Okay, now a quick pop quiz, trivia quiz. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, when Jesus wanted to tell people who he was, he used a title that no one else used, but he seemed, from what we can tell, he used it of himself. What was the unique title that only Jesus used of himself in the New Testament? Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. The disciples didn't call him Son of Man. The Pharisees definitely didn't call him the Son of Man. It was his self-designation. In other words, he was saying, I'm Daniel 7 guy. You Think about that. That's amazing. You know, that's why I just kind of shake my head a little bit when uh, people say to me, oh yeah, Jesus, he was cool. Yeah, he was a good teacher. He, he taught good things. He was kind of a guru. You know, I mean, yeah, I respect Jesus. a good teacher. You know, he taught us to, you know, love each other and be tolerant and, you know, recycle and stuff like that. I mean, he was cool. Um, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you, do you know what he actually taught? He claimed to be the Son of Man. <laughs> like, you don't claim to be the Son of Man unless either A, you're a sociopathic megalomaniac, or B, you're the Son of Man. There's only like two categories you put someone in who goes around claiming that. It wasn't, you know, let's all get together and try to love one another right now. It was, I'm the Son of Man. And that, my friends, is why He was crucified. You don't get crucified for teaching people to be kind to each other. That's not, that's not typically what happens. But you do get crucified when you come along claiming to be someone who has more authority than the Pharisees, more authority than the Sadducees, more authority than the priesthood, more authority than the temple itself. That will get you crucified in Jesus' day. More authority even than Caesar in Rome. He was claiming to be the king of glory who was going to have the kingdom of God that would never pass away. And so they said, blasphemy. They said, crucify him. He's guilty of blasphemy. He is a megalomaniac sociopath. Put him on a cross. From an earthly perspective, that's why he was on the cross. From a heavenly perspective, he was on the cross because he let him put himself there. But... They crucified him. They rendered a guilty verdict against him. They gave him a sentence of death. 
But his case was then kicked up to a higher court, to the Supreme Court. And God said, overrule. You've given the wrong verdict. This is incorrect. You think he's a blasphemer? Actually, he's not sociopath. He's the Son of Man. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was first and foremost a vindication of his claims and his identity. That he wasn't just another guy out there spouting a new philosophy or a new bestseller self-help book. He was saying, I am the man. And he was raised from the dead. And so his resurrection is the vindication of his message and his claims to be the Son of God and the Son of Man. And when he was raised, don't you see, to connect this back to Revelation 11 now, it was the beginning of the kingdom of God. That as He ascended to the Father's right hand and was seated next to the Father, it was His sort of universal coronation. He was placed on the throne and that's where He is today. And now we're just waiting for the final day when the King returns to settle all accounts. So the resurrection was the beginning of this kingdom that we're reading about going back to Revelation chapter 11. This was the beginning of it all. And it vindicated Christ as Lord and King. That's why the resurrection is so central to the Christian faith. I mean, it's, it's every, it, either if Christ is raised, then He's Lord. If not, the whole thing is kind of silly. Really. Think about it. But when He comes on that day, His kingdom will be established. The kingdom of the world will pass away and it will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Look what else happens there. Go back to Revelation 11, verse 17. He will take His great power and begin to reign. Verse 18, the nations were angry, but your wrath has come. You know, right now, the part of the kingdom of the world is, is people are mad at God sometimes. You can't do this to me. Do you know who we are? We're, we're the kingdom of the world here. And people shake their fist at God and they demand things of God. You know, prove that you exist. Prove scientifically to me that you exist. As if God has to prove anything to anybody. You know, even as we use the lungs that he created to utter threats against him. God is just like, come on. I mean, really. And we shake our fists and we demand things of God as if He owes us anything, as if He already hasn't given us everything. As if we even know what we know because of science. I mean, people, most of what we know and believe, we didn't get through science. You know, probably a small part of it. Most of what we know and believe, we just kind of believe. You know, what about love? You can't prove love through science. What about logic? Logic isn't proven scientifically. Logic is assumed by science, and science builds upon logic. Mathematics are assumed. You, you don't prove that scientifically. It's just part of, of, of what we understand to be. Reality itself is something we assume on faith. I think most of what we do when we function in the world is based upon things other than test tubes and Bunsen burners. Not that there's anything wrong from science. Science is just the investigation of the world that God has made. I see science as, the ultimate act, as an ultimate act of worship. To glorify God by studying His universe and saying, wow, what an awesome world you made, God. And so, you know, but we shake our fists. We're angry at God as if we have so many demands upon Him. That's the attitude of the kingdom of the world. And God says, no, 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 my kingdom is coming. We were angry. The nations were angry. Verse 18, your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. So there'll be a separation taking place among humanity for rewarding your servants, the prophets and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. There'll be a separation. 
it's kind of like if you ever gone overseas and you come back to Logan in an airplane and uh, come to Terminal E there, you got to go through customs, right? And depending on what passport you have determines what line you go into. If you have a U.S. passport, you go in one line. If you don't, you have to go in another line. And that's how it will be on that day, on the great judgment day. There will be a great sort of sifting of kingdoms. Which kingdom do you belong to? And depending on what passport you have, will determine your destination forever and ever. A great sorting is coming, a great restructuring of the universe that has never been seen before. Two questions for reflection. Let me just leave you with two questions to reflect on this text. Question number one, what does your passport say? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of the world or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And for the record, there is no dual citizenship in this matter. Am I fundamentally autonomous in my understanding of the world, reality, morality, all these things that we've talked about? Do I I really believe that it is my judgment and my reason that is the final say? Or am I a citizen in the kingdom of God where God has the authority and the glory and the worship and and God has called me out of my small little mental world into His great world that He has created onto an adventure that will blow my mind, so to speak? Am I part of His kingdom? Or look at verse 18. Would I say of myself that I am truly a servant of God? Would I say of myself, verse 18, that I am a saint? Am I one who reverences God's name? Or is the only time I really say the name of Jesus Christ when I, you know, hit my thumb with the hammer or something like that? Do I reverence Him? Would other people who know me well call me a servant of God? Would other people who know me well call me a, a saint? One who's growing in holiness. Would someone call me one who reverences God? Yeah, yeah Jeremy, he really reverences God. I mean, would, would people say that about us? And I think it's so important to understand again that our our identity is a matter ultimately of the heart, not even necessarily of behavior. We can be in a church, but not be in the kingdom of God. It's a matter of turning to Christ. And that raises my second question for reflection. The first one is, what does your passport say? And the second question is one that we should probably ask. uh, Is it possible to switch national identities? (laughs) Is there an embassy to which I can apply for a new passport? Can I seek asylum in the kingdom of God and flee the kingdom of the world? How does one get from one kingdom to the other? Do I get a green card first? Do I have to pass a naturalization exam? Are there classes I take? How do you get from one to the other? What's the process? And this is where it becomes so tricky because, again, The kingdom is not something necessarily out there. It's something deep within my soul and my spirit. So what I'm really saying is, how can I get a new kind of heart? How can I become a new kind of person? And this is where it's so so challenging. You know, what what do you do? I mean, if I were to tell you, yeah, to get into the kingdom of heaven, it's easy. Just attend church faithfully for a year and tithe. You could do that. That's doable. Or if I were to say, look, to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's very simple. You need to be sober for three years and clean. You can do that. People can become sober and clean. It's good to become sober and clean. 
Um, or, or you say, look, to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, go on a, um, you know, a, a service project, join the Peace Corps, and go to a, an impoverished nation for two years and help. And if you do that, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I could do that. It would be a sacrifice, but I could totally do that. But the problem with all of those solutions is, whether I'm in a church, or whether I'm in a 12-step program, or whether I'm in a foreign field, it's still me. <laughs> I'm still there. And I'm the problem. I just can't help taking me with me wherever I go. I am who I am. And the selfishness and the pride and the self-justification and the, the rationalizations are just so deep. And even when I go out and do those do-gooder things, oh, my, my pride is just welling up in me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I, I was in this country for two years. I mean, you know, it's just, I can't escape me. So what I need is not a different task. I need a new heart. I, I need a resequencing of the DNA of my soul, or however that would happen. I don't know how to do that. I don't know if it can be done. Well, with humanity, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why I say Easter isn't over yet. Because the power that raised Christ from the dead, the supernatural power, not human strategies, but the supernatural power of God that, that did the miracle of Jesus' resurrection is still available today to change our lives. Jesus Christ was crucified. His blood was shed. And it was shed to forgive my sins and our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, He was dying as a substitute. He was taking the punishment and the, the penal consequences of sin that I deserved so that I could be forgiven. And when He rose from the dead, He was showing His divine power that God can do anything. And so that's the great news. That there's nobody here today who is so uh, tainted, so soiled, so ruined by bad choices and sin. There's no one so ruined that Christ can't wash you clean. There's nobody here who is so wrapped up in their problems and addictions and habits and, and junk. There's no one so trapped in that that Christ can't set you free just as the tomb was rolled away and Christ came out. God can set you free from that. There's no one here who's so old, so far down the path, so set in their ways that God can't yank you out and in a moment put you on a completely new footing, on a new path. I don't care if you're 60, 70, 80, 90. It's not about age. It's about our hearts. And God is not bound by time. He can change a heart in a moment. The good news of Easter is that God can change people and save us from what we can't save ourselves from which is why Jesus came to save a people off the trash heap of sin before we're burned and thrown away he came to save a people that day is coming there is a final judgment coming but praise God it's not here yet I mean I wish it was here in some ways but in some ways I'm glad it's not because there's still time whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved is what the scripture says because people, thank God, Easter isn't over yet. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we simply pray this morning that you would exert your great sovereign power from your royal throne in heaven and you would do a new work among us. Lord, I don't know who many of these people are, even the people I know. How well do we really know each other? But God, you know us to the very core of our being. You know what we need. You even know what we need when we don't know what we need. And so, God, we pray that you would exert your power this morning through your word and that you would bring us to yourself, Lord, that you would let lights turn on, that people who have questions, doubts, issues they're hung up on, Lord, that even this month, I pray, you would supernaturally answer the doubts and the questions that people may have. That, Lord, it might not be some preacher's rhetoric that changes hearts, but it might be the power of the living God. And so, Lord, be at work among us. Give us strength. Continue to transform us more and more to the image of Jesus day by day by that resurrection power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, who is today risen from the dead, reigning and will reign forever as King of all kings and Lord of lords.
gather the nations before you, and the eyes of all men will be fixed on the Lamb who was service is over. Some members of our prayer team are here, Nancy and Judy. We'd love to pray with you after the service. If you don't have a Bible at home, we have a gift for you. At the door as you go out, you'll find uh, some Bibles in plain English that you can take home to be able to read. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your great goodness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for a king who came and died for his subjects a king who rose victorious, a king who reigns and who will come forever to reign over the whole world, over the nations. Bring glory to your name through us. Work in our hearts that we might follow you, that you might reign over us. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> hey, Bruce, good to see you, my man. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Hello, hi. Oh, okay, yeah. I was asking all about you. Yeah, okay, cool. That's great. Awesome, you do exist. That's good. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Take care. Hey, thanks, dude. Very good, Appreciate it. Have a great Easter, guys. Hey, have a good Easter. Hi, nice to meet you.
Hey, great to see you, my man. All right, welcome back. Hello, happy Easter. Hello, hi, happy Easter. Thanks. Happy Easter, you too. You too. Hey, welcome. Good to see you. Happy Easter, man. Take care. Hello, good to see you. Hey, that's your Jane, right? All right, that's right. Jeremy, nice to meet you. Hey, cool, nice to meet you. Welcome. Dude, what's up, my man? Bye, see you later. Hello, welcome back. Good to oh, see you. Thank you. Take care, man. God bless you. Hey, good to see you, Kenny. No service tonight. We're chilling tonight. Good to see you, my man. Hey, have a good one. Good to see you. We look all different, don't we? All a little spruced up here. <laughs> Not so gross. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. So, okay, yeah, totally. Hey, guys. Monsieur. Hallelujah. No, no meeting tonight. Just a reminder. Hallelujah. That's right. Next week. Next week. Good to see you, my man. Right. All right. How are you? Good to see you. Happy Easter. Good to see you, friend. All right. Bye-bye. Hello. <laughs> you like it? I like the hat. It looks good. Bye. Dude, you're back, huh? Yeah. Just for the next four hours, then you're off. Have a great week. Happy Easter to you, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very cool. Hello. Good to see you. All right. Happy Easter. God bless you. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. Bye, Adam. Nice to meet you, too. All right. Very cool. All right, pal. What's going on, dude? Welcome. Hey, thanks, man. Hey, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Hey, good to see you again. Yeah, thank you. I kind of lost control of myself. Yeah, I know. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, regular clothes and the beard shaved off. No one knows what I said. <laughs> Forget the moo moo. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you, my dear. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Yet another Linden Ponds refugee here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of us here. We have a whole tribe. I call them the tribe of Linden. Yeah, they're here. 